The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh, hey citizens, how are we? Yeah? Good, good. Uh, Tim, thanks you, thank you for those kind words. Some might say they were too kind, uh, but I greatly appreciate them. Uh, it is really, really good to be with you guys tonight. I am pumped to be here. Uh, I believe as a guest preacher, I am contractually obligated to say something about bald Tim. Um, so... This is me doing that. I just wanted to go ahead and get that out of the way up front so that we could all chill because we all knew it was going to come at some point in time. Uh, but, but genuinely, I am really glad to be here. Like you heard Tim say, uh, I've, I've been on this church planning journey that you are all on. And I know it's like incredibly exciting times. And honestly, before we got down to anything, I really just wanted to encourage you for where you're at. Uh, because speaking as somebody who has a little bit of experience in this, uh, I'm really envious of the place that you guys are in right now in these early years. These these early years of planning a church are truly some of the most special ones that you get to endure. And I know it doesn't always feel that way, right? Like it feels like, man, we're so mobile. Are we ever going to have a, like a permanent building to be our permanent home? Uh, what's the future going to hold for us? Like, are we going to make it? And all of these sorts of things. Uh, I get that. But man, the stuff that God does in these early years is really, really special. Like I, I really do believe that these are some of the most formative years for you as a young community. Like the relationships that you build the ways that you serve, like all of that, it goes such an incredibly long way for cultivating the type of church community you're going to become one day. Uh, and I don't think this is exaggerating to say that God does some of his most formative work in this season, helping you understand more of who he is, who you are as disciples, uh, who the church is at large. And certainly God will do that and more in other seasons. But I'm just trying to tell you there's something really special about this one. So drink it up. Drink it up for all that it's worth. Uh, all that being said, today, uh, I want to talk to you about God. Uh, and if Tim and company have done their job well, that should surprise absolutely nobody, right? From, from what I understand, over the past several weeks, you guys uh, have been doing a little bit of a study on like God's character, who he is. You've talked about how he's a God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Uh, how his gospel is good news, both for the person who considers themselves good and for the person who knows that they are bad. Essentially, you've been on this little journey looking at who is God and why does that matter for you? Why should, what does that affect about the way you live and these sorts of things? And it's, it's on that foundation that I really want to, to build tonight. Uh, as the theologian A.W. Tozer has famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
Because what we know about God, what we believe to be true about God, affects all kinds of things. It affects the way we live. It affects what we do. It affects how we think about ourselves. It affects how we pray. It affects our attitudes towards God and other people. So, for example, like if, if I believe that God is somewhat cold and distant, instead of being this God abounding in steadfast love and mercy, well, then I'm going to live that way. I'm going to live like he's not all that interested in my life. I'm not going to pray that much because why bother? He's not going to respond. Honestly, he's probably a little disappointed with me to begin with. If I believe that God is some sort of just like cosmic therapist or butler or what have you, then I'll kind of approach him, especially in my prayer life, like he's some sort of deified version of Santa where I just come to him with my list of wants and troubles instead of uh, someone who is worthy of my worship and adoration and all of this. And there are lots of other examples, but point being, knowing God for who he really is matters. That's the point. And today, I want to help us step into that a little bit by studying the book of Job together. And so I'm going to actually try to do something that might be a little audacious. I'm going to try to give us a a, a flyover of the entire book of Job, the entire narrative and and, and story. And so it'll be a little bit of a journey. And how I'm going to start is I'm going to give us something of a 30,000 foot view of the first like 37 or so chapters. And then we'll really dive in on chapters 38 through 42. So let's just start at the beginning where all good things start in Job chapter one, verse one. It reads, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, to give you just a little bit of context here, the book of Job is something of an anomaly in the Old Testament. And by that I mean, uh, take this for example, where, where exactly is Uz? We don't really know, all right? We, we really don't know. Uh, what time period was this written in? We don't really know that either. We don't have much of an idea about that. Well, what genre is it then? Is it history? Is it poetry? Or is it something different? Is it like a parable of some sort? Uh, Yes, kind of. I mean, again, we don't really know. And some scholars will actually argue that this is kind of the point that the lack of detail that we are given is actually intentional because what the author is actually trying to do is he's trying to pull us in and have us pay more attention to what the story is about, the universal themes of the human experience that it taps into more than anything else. Themes like, what do we do when God doesn't make sense to us? What do we do then? What should we think when God does or rather doesn't do something that we expected him to do? when his actions don't seem to make sense according to what we know about him? How should we approach him in times, or how should we approach the times in our lives where we're touched with suffering or hardship and that voice inside of us is just crying out, why, why? The truth is, is that every one of us, if you haven't already, is likely going to find ourselves in a position like this at some point in time in our lives. It's part of being human. I'd be willing to bet that some of you are living with those sorts of questions right now, where you can't quite make sense of the things and you'd like God to give you some answers. And just for what it's worth, if you've ever felt like feeling that way, or that thinking those things makes you something of a wallflower or an outsider in God's community, I hope you'll find the experience of Job to be a comfort and an encouragement to you. That this is actually what the book is about. You are not alone. In fact, the Bible itself welcomes you into its story. And for what it's worth, I know Citizens is a great place to be if you find yourself there. But this is what the story of Job is all about. 
The opening pages tell us that Job is a good man with a good life. When we're introduced to him, we see that he is a man who has lots of wealth, lots of prosperity, lots of kids, and he's described as being blameless and upright, a blameless and upright man, someone who loves God and follows him as best he can. In fact, it even goes as far as to tell us that he makes sacrifices daily for all 10 of his children just in case they happen to sin unintentionally that day. Listen, I have a seven-year-old at home, and I'll tell you right now, if he sins unintentionally, I'm just like, that's between you and Jesus, bro. I got nothing for you here, right? But that is not the type of dad that Job is. But in verses 6 through 12, the scene shifts pretty dramatically, and we're taken into this weird sort of heavenly staff meeting with God and his heavenly counsel, where the accuser, or as we call him Satan, comes to God in verses 9 through 11 and says, you know, the only reason that people like Job love and worship you is because you've given him a good life. In fact, if you took his good life away, he wouldn't love or worship you anymore. He wouldn't want to be about what you are about. And in verse 12, we read, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. God says, Okay, then, take everything from him, and we will see how that goes. Which right out of the gate raises some questions, doesn't it? Like, God, you did what? What, what is happening here? But regardless, Satan does it, and get this. In all of it, Job doesn't stop loving or honoring God. He doesn't accuse God of wrongdoing. Verses 21 through 22, Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In fact, throughout the whole narrative, while Job strongly contends for answers to the questions his suffering creates, and he strongly asserts that he doesn't deserve the suffering that he has received, he never once accuses God of being in the wrong or sinning against him. Which, for what it's worth, I think that's an important little nugget for us when we consider our own questions and doubts and struggles. Because it's very easy for our questions about God to slide into accusations against him, isn't it? To go from, God, what's going on? To, God, you're wrong. You're wrong and you owe me something. And I hope, as we'll soon see, that's actually a pretty problematic posture for us to take. But this starts a little back and forth where Satan progressively takes more and more away from Job, all of his kids, all of his wealth, even his health, and still Job blesses God. But in all of this, as you would expect anyone going through something like this too, he does have questions, just like we would. He doesn't understand why his life has gone the way that it's gone. It doesn't make sense to him. And in the next several chapters, we see that he has three friends who come to visit him in his grief, and they all have different takes on why this has happened to Job. Now, for what it's worth, sometimes these friends get a really bad rap. People want to say that they weren't good friends because they tried to give Job all these wrong answers. But I want to say that that's not true. They were good friends. They came to be with Job in his darkest moments taking time off of work, away from family, to just come and sit with the person that they cared for in his suffering. These are good friends. These are just good friends with poor theology, much like many of your good friends. So when Job starts to speak and question what God is doing, their response is, and we see this in chapter 4, remember, who that, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright ever cut off? Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Essentially, they're saying to him, Job, look, you must have done something. You had to do something. We know how God works, and he wouldn't have done this to you unless you deserved it. They have this 
idea of God that is easily explainable, that God is just and he deals justly. Therefore, if something goes wrong in your life, you must have done something to deserve it. If you would just repent, it would go better for you. And Job is like, I am telling you, that is not true. It's not true. I haven't done anything to warrant this in my life. And for the next 35 chapters, Job goes back and forth with his friends, trying to make sense out of God and his circumstances. Now, I think it bears mentioning, maybe you've been in a spot like that before yourself. And I'm not talking about the type of hardship brought into your life through your own sin or foolishness or through the sin or foolishness of other people. Like, we certainly all have that, where we have to live with the consequence, consequences of actions, and that's a sermon for another time. But rather, I'm talking about how life has just not turned out for you how you thought it was going to. You thought you'd be married by now. You thought your career would have gone differently than it has. You never thought loss would touch your life in the way that it has. And like Job, maybe you find yourself in a spot where you would like God to give you some answers. And that finally brings us to chapter 38, where God does answer Job. But much like Job's circumstances, the answer isn't exactly what Job expected either. Let's pick up in chapter 38, verse 1. It reads, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So after all has been said and done and argued and pleaded, God actually steps in and he speaks and he comes to Job in a whirlwind. And that's actually just an illustrative way to communicate his majesty and his might, his power. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? God's funny way of saying, who do you think you are? Verse 3, dress for action like a man. The Hebrew is more literally translated, gird your loins, which I just love. I just think that's awesome. It, get, it carries a little bit more oomph, in my opinion, than dress for action. And God goes on, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Essentially, he's saying to Job, I hear the questions you have of me, but allow me to turn the tables just a bit here and give you some things to consider. And then God rattles off some 60-odd questions in a row of his own about Job's understanding of things, ranging from all sorts of topics, from the vastness of space to the earth's weather, weather patterns to animals on the land and creatures of the sea. Like in verse 4, he begins with, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, where were you when I made this world that you live in? Tell me if you know exactly how I did it. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Essentially, Job, remind me, remind me, who has brought the sun up every single morning that you've been alive? Was that me or was that you? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? These are all referring to different constellations. And God is, God is asking, did you set all of these in their place? Did you set all of these in their place and cause them to come out in their season? Then over in chapter 41, starting in verse 1, can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put a leash on him for your girls? This is a reference to some sort of giant sea creature. Some scholars think he's talking about a whale or an alligator or a hippo. And I, I don't really know what it is, but God is basically saying, Job, can you make that thing your pet? Can you put a leash on it so that your children can play with it? 
And there are also some really random ones in there too, like in chapter 39, where God essentially asks, Job, how much do you know about the reproduction habits of goats? <laughs> and then later on in uh, verses 13 through 17, where God essentially says, hey, can you tell me why ostriches are so big and proud, and yet at the same time so ugly and stupid? Do you, do you know why they are that way? Do you know these things? In all of this, God is essentially asking, who is the expert here, Job? Who's the expert? Is it me or is it you? And I know that that might sound a little bit over the top. Like, is God just trying to drop the hammer on Job? Like, what, what is happening here? But the answer to that would be no. What God is doing is he is trying to give Job some perspective, helping him see, Job, if you can't fully fathom the mystery of all of these natural things, do you think you are in a position to fully understand eternal ones? If you can't understand what, is, what, what makes everything around you tick, do you really think you have the perspective to understand what I am doing when I stand beyond and above creation and time and everything else? Before all of this, Job thought he actually was in that position. And you know what? We often do too. We often do too. We live in an age that author Tom Nichols calls in his book of the same title, The Death of Expertise, where we have so much content in front of us, whether it's Google or social media or the 24-hour news cycle, where instead of making us more intellectually advanced, we now think that we are the experts on any given topic. He says, these are dangerous times. Never have so many people had so much access to so much knowledge and yet have been so resistant to learning anything. The public constantly searches for loopholes in expert knowledge that will allow them to disregard all expert advice they don't like. And all my finance pros who have ever met a crypto bro know exactly what he's saying. <laughs> you know exactly what he's saying. Shoot, COVID-19 was a walking case study in this. For what it's worth, if you guys want to know a little bit about me, this is also my speed. I can be a walking case study in this. I am, uh, I am a little bit of what they would call a hypochondriac. Not a lot of it. Just a little bit, all right? My wife, my wife likes to say I have a flair for the dramatic, okay? I'm the guy who will check his symptoms on WebMD and be convinced that this ingrown hair is actually carcinoma, okay? Like that, that's where I'm at. And my, it's a problem, and I know that, and I need somebody to say to me, Bailey, stay in your lane, all right? Stay in your lane, take this topical treatment, and go get a good night's sleep. I need that. Some of you doctors, nurses, teachers, like you went to school for years upon years to become experts in your field, and I can't imagine how you must feel when you have to interact with somebody like me, or worse, who come to you for whatever reason, who say, listen, I know you went to school for a decade and everything, but I read an article and my friend's friend's mom had this thing happen, so... I think you're actually wrong. How bewildering, how, how maddening that you would have to deal with me. But to an extent, this is just the air we breathe, right? This is just the air we breathe, doubt, skepticism, and a near constant distrust of authority. It is basically what it means to be an American at this point. But here's the thing. We often turn this on God too. We believe that we are the experts or that we have enough perspective to tell God how he should be running things in our lives. We even believe we have enough information to accuse God of wrongdoing when we can't make sense of him or what's going on in our lives or in the world. Especially, 
especially in times of uncertainty or struggle or doubt. It is a common occurrence to put God on trial, so to speak, demanding that he answer our charges that we've brought against him. And please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that doubt or having questions is a bad thing and that you should feel bad for having them, not even remotely. In fact, most of the mature disciples of Jesus I know have struggled at different points in their life with seasons of deep doubt. The point is not to be a person without questions, but rather to be a person who has some perspective on who it is they're questioning. I fear many of us have never actually wrestled with or grasped that God is a being of, a, of this kind, of a kind of unfathomable magnitude, wisdom, and goodness. That we haven't truly grasped that he is a being that has perspective that we don't have. Perspective, really, that we can't have. For many of us, we haven't rejected God per se, but we've merely reduced him assuming that we are on the same playing field with him. And if, if anything, he is just a little bit bigger and a little bit smarter than we are. But what we fail to realize is that if, if, excuse me, but what we fail to realize is that if we have a God who is big enough to question, then we also have a God who is big enough to have answers that we can't understand. In the words of Evelyn Underhill, a God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshiped. Or as fellow North Carolinian pastor J.D. Greer says, a God we can predict, instruct, and control is not a God who will captivate our affections or command our devotion. He is not God enough. He's a God we can never really trust because he's not wise or glorious enough to account for the glories and the tragedies of our existence. And because we've never truly considered how much greater his wisdom must be than ours, how much higher his ways, how much purer his thoughts, we think that we just need a few more answers, just a little more explanation. And that's not just something that he could do to satisfy us, but something rather he must do if he wants our worship. Not to mention that those answers must also be ones that we personally agree with too. But we're wrong. And that is what God is trying to get Job to see. What it means to be God is that he is on a playing field all his own. He works in ways that we do not always comprehend. And he is not captive to our reasoning as if he were on trial or as, he were, as if he were an employee who owes us a report. Simply put, if God is God, then we are not. And that means he doesn't actually owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. The message of God to Job and subsequently the message of Job to us is that answers are not the most important thing. The most important thing is knowing that he is greater than me. That's the most important thing. That he is a God whose greatness is so great that it would make our minds explode to truly comprehend him. And whose goodness is so good that if we truly saw it, we wouldn't know if we wanted to draw closer or actually run away. You see, God is inviting each and every one of us to have a little bit of perspective too. So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to invite you for a moment to do to do a little bit of a mental exercise with me, okay? Uh, it'll probably work better if you close your eyes. You don't have to, but if you want to get the full experience, you probably should, all right? So here's what I want you to do. I, I, I want, as best I can, I want to try to help us get some of this perspective. 
So where you're at, take a minute, close your eyes, and I just want you to start by taking in a few breaths. Now as you're breathing, I want you to think about those breaths for just a moment. Those breaths that you feel rising and falling in your chest. Those breaths at this very moment are being graciously given to you and sustained by this God, whom Isaiah 42 describes, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He knows every molecule coursing through your body. He is causing them to converge in your lungs and feed your blood circulation. And he's holding together every cell within you right now, understanding the precise way that each one works exactly as he ordered it to do. He knows what each one is doing and he's keeping them going. And yet our God is greater than that. He knows what sounds you're hearing right now, including but not limited to my voice, and the feelings and emotions and thoughts that are arising in your mind at this very moment. As the psalmist says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. And he knows why you're thinking them. And he knows why you're feeling them and what causes them, and what causes those causes. And furthermore, he's doing the same thing for the person sitting next to you. He's doing the same thing for them and for the person sitting next to them, and next to them, and next to them, as well as all the persons in the next building over, and in the building after that, and in the next town over, and city, and state, and country. In fact, he is intimately aware of everything going on in the lives of the 7.7 billion people in the world today. And yet, God is greater than that. In these same moments, he is sustaining every ecosystem on every continent and every body of water everywhere. Life and all its diverse forms on our planet, the birth of every animal, the flight of every bird, the growth of every leaf on every tree that has ever existed, establishing every weather pattern and the season, every harvest and every planting, from the tiniest of civilizations to the most complex, not a seed of which has gotten lost or hidden from his view. He's intricately involved in it all. And yet... God is greater than that. I heard someone once remark that if you were to stretch out your arms right now and your entire wingspan was representative of human history and then you took a nail file and just took a little bit off the edge of your fingernail, that that would be the equivalent of your lifespan. And yet God has been present for every single moment, not of just your lifespan, but all of it. He knows what has happened on every single day from then until now, the rise and fall of every empire, every invention ever made, the details of all of our art and literature, the intricacies of the craftsmanship on your designer genes, every square inch of human knowledge and technology that has ever been made and ever will be. 
He's experienced the love of every young couple, the joy of every birth of every child, the hopes and dreams of every human that has ever existed. He's been present in every celebration and every pain. Every tear of joy that has ever been cried and every cry of agony and grief that has ever been wailed. And yet, our God is greater than that. Saying of himself, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It's not just that he knows all that has happened, but all that will happen and how it will all turn out. He knows exactly how things are going to end, never once being surprised or caught off guard or troubled by anything that has unfolded in your life or the lives of the billions of people before and after you. You can go ahead and open your eyes back up. Do you see what I mean about perspective? This is who God is. So I don't know every story in the room. Maybe some of you are like Job and you've, you've lost kids and health and livelihoods. Maybe that's you. Bare minimum, I bet there are many more of us in here for whom life has just not quite gone how we thought it was going to go. And that's hard. It's really hard. Maybe your job and career have not exactly played out in reality the way they did in your mind. You haven't risen up as fast as you expected you would. Maybe you've even started to feel like this career path that you were so amped for just a few years ago has now kind of turned into a dead end. Maybe you were let go and you wrestle with all of these questions about what, what does that mean for my future? And in quiet moments, you even think, what, is, what does that mean about me? How could God let this happen? Or perhaps relationships, marriage, and family haven't turned out the way you thought they would. You thought you'd be married by now or have kids. Or for the few of you who do have kids, that you would have different kids, if you know what I mean. And you know, those aren't bad desires. But for the life of you, you can't understand why God would withhold such good things from you. Does he even care? Maybe it's even as simple as this church is not what you thought it would be. You loved the beautiful vision initially, but now when the rubber has met the road, you found that everything, even the beautiful, has some imperfections. You don't have all the friends that you thought you would have. Or perhaps those friendships have changed in ways you never thought that they would. It doesn't look like what you expected it to look like. There's been more conflict than you anticipated ever having to navigate. And there's this little thing in you that wonders, Maybe the grass really is greener somewhere else. Maybe God doesn't want me here. Maybe, and of course you would never actually say this out loud, but sometimes you think, maybe God isn't even here. Listen, what you need to know is that there is a God who is greater than you, who sees things that you cannot see, who knows things that you do not know. And just because you can't make sense out of what is happening and don't know what he's doing, it doesn't mean that he's not doing anything. So let me just say this a bit differently for those of you who need to hear it. God will not answer all of your questions before he calls you to trust and follow him. He didn't do that for anybody. 
Not for Job, not for Moses, not for the prophets or his disciples. He simply speaks in undeniable ways through whirlwinds and burning bushes and empty tombs, and he invites you to trust him and believe. If understanding everything is a prerequisite for belief, you will never believe because faith is accepting what you can't understand on the basis of what you can understand. And what you can understand is that he is greater than you. And just because you don't know what he's doing, it doesn't mean that he is absent. It doesn't mean that he's lost control. And most of all, it doesn't mean that he's let you go. Because here's the best part of all. The greatness of God is actually even greater still. If you're sleeping on it, you'll miss the profound way that the book of Job reveals it back in 38 verse 1. It says, then the Lord answered. After all of Job's questions and demands for an explanation, we see those four simple words come breaking through. Then the Lord answered. Whenever you see the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's God's special name that, he, that only his people called him, Yahweh, Yahweh. The covenant-keeping, Messiah-bringing, kingdom-conquering God of the universe is here to enter into a conversation with Job and all of his questions. I love how Tim Keller talked about this, this little instance. He, he said, we are told that Yahweh answered Job out of the storm. This phrase, as generic as it looks to us in English, is significant. In Hebrew idiom, to speak to someone indicates one-way communication of an authority to an inferior, while to answer or to reply to expresses dialogue between two parties. It is striking then that when God shows up, he enters into dialogue. He doesn't come simply to denounce. In other words, God is inviting Job into a relationship. Yes, God comes, displaying, comes to Job displaying all of his power and his might, but also like a loving parent to a child, he is kneeling down to respond. He is not just coming at Job with anger and trying to put Job in his place, but he is coming to Job like a good friend. You remember when I said Job's friends were good? God is showing here he is the better friend. That is who he is. Do you see? This God, this all-powerful, all-knowing God out of the overflow of the same cosmic power that he used to create everything that has ever existed, who stands before and after all of time, who holds every life, every person, every breath in the palm of his hand, doesn't just invite Job to have some perspective, but he invites Job into relationship. You see, we do need perspective. We do. It's important but we are actually given something better. We are given relationship. No, we don't always know why what has come into our life has come to us, but we can always know who has come to us, who is with us through every up and every down, every moment of clarity and every moment of pain and doubt. This God has come to us. Because this God who stands sovereign over all creation is the same God who came to his people in Jesus, lost in sin to pay what they owe that we might be held in his hands forever. 
who through the cross and resurrection covenanted himself to his people and said, no matter what, I am in this with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Behold, I will be with you until the end of the age, who according to Romans 8.28 is even now, right in these moments, even in the moments of your biggest pain, your biggest doubts, your biggest questions, is working all things together for the good of those who love him. This God, out of the overflow of his grace and mercy gives himself to us. And when life doesn't go as you expected it to go, this is exactly what you need. It's exactly what you need. When life caves in on you, whether that's caused by a global pandemic, an unexpected cancer diagnosis, the crashing of the stock market, or fill in the blank, whatever it is, you need more than a sentimental Jesus sitting beside you, stroking your hand, explaining that there's a silver lining or whatever, giving you all these silly platitudes about how things that don't kill you make you stronger. No, you need more than that. You need a God of infinite glory who sits upon the throne of the universe, who has promised to marshal every molecule of creation in pursuit of his plan and your good, who regardless of if you ever understand why what is happening is happening, stands behind your salvation and will let nothing, nothing stand in his way. When life in whatever shape, way, or form doesn't go like you thought it would, you need more than the trivial comfort of, oh, God has a plan, you just need to trust it. No matter how true that might be. You need a God who has been where you've been, who has felt the pain of loss, suffered the weight of injustice, who has cried himself in agony. A God who can weep with you as you weep. A God who cares about your pain. A God who cared enough about it to do something about it and walked out of the tomb so that you could one day walk out of yours. You need a God like that who has made himself personally available to you. And friends, that is exactly who God is. It's exactly who he is. And so let me be clear. I don't, I don't understand everything that God is doing in my life or in the world for that matter. And I probably won't until I meet Jesus face to face. What I do know is that God has revealed his intentions for me clearly in the cross of Jesus. For whatever happens to you or me, it cannot mean that God is absent or out of control or that he doesn't love you. On the cross, we see what is arguably the most astounding and confusing action that God would ever take. We see him willingly enter our suffering. On the cross, he did more than promise to fix our pain. He immersed himself in it. And if there was ever a time that felt like God was not there or that God did not care or that God wasn't in control, it was when Jesus was crucified. But now, however, we know that there was never a time that God was more in control than in those moments. He took the worst, the most inexplicable event in human history, the murder of his son, and turned it for his glory and our good. And he did it in love. This we can know without question. What we can understand is that Jesus really is who he says he is and really can do and has done all that he said he would do. And so we may never, 
We may never understand why God does everything he does, but we can know who he is, and that will always be enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that this is who you are, that you are far greater than we even know. Like, who of us could actually utter your mighty deeds or even declare all the praise that you are actually worth? And who are we that you would be mindful of us, that you would care for us and draw near to us? God, that almost doesn't make sense, but it's who you are. And God, we just want to offer up praise to that. We want to thank you that this is who you are. We thank you for Jesus who has made knowing you and being found in you possible for all of us. God, I pray that you would help us with what we can't understand. That by your spirit, you would strengthen our faith. Help us to rest on your unchanging grace. In the words of that famous hymn, in every high and stormy gale, God, be our anchor that holds us in the veil. And Father, I just want to pray that over my citizens, brothers and sisters today. I ask that you would work it in them. That yes, God, you would give them perspective that they need. But more than that, you would help them to step into the relationship that you have invited them into. And that your person and your presence would be a comfort to them throughout whatever life may bring. God, I pray that you would strengthen us for the journey, for your glory and our good. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.